five, four, three, two, one, and a happy new year. It's <laughs> pretty good numbers. Great. Welcome to a new year and a brand new episode of Jack Daniels presents This Life Ain't For Everybody with Chad Belding, where we're in pursuit of absolute freedom and health. You gotta live life. You gotta enjoy. You gotta make mostly healthy choices. For 2024, Chad is taking a stand. He's pushing back and asking the hardest hitting question of all. Is red meat the devil when it comes to heart disease? What I've come to really think about a lot is we're probably asking the wrong question. It's not what we eat. It's what the animal ate. On today's episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody, Chad is joined by Dr. Michael Block, a vascular medical specialist, and he comes bearing good news and a cautionary tale. Most of the time, cardiovascular disease is preventable, but you can't treat it unless you know about it. Jack Daniels proudly supports This Life Ain't For Everybody and wants to remind everybody to drink responsibly and to never drive under the influence. Nothing feels better than that first drink or two. Chad Belding and Dr. Michael Block are now ready to see you. So turn your heads, cough, and crank up the volume. I'm reading this thing right here that about 695,000 people die of heart disease in the U.S. every year. That's probably an underestimation, but yeah, it's a shocking number. Every year, about 805,000 Americans have a heart attack. That's right. That's a lot. It is a lot. It is a lot. Let me think about There's 300 million people here. Yep. So... I'm not good at math. You're the dog. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, it's common. And you know, one of the things that is uh, so frustrating about it is so many of those heart attacks, so many of those deaths are 100% preventable. Um, we're seeing it at younger and younger ages um, as obesity and the metabolic syndrome and diabetes become more prevalent. Um, but this is something that's preventable and uh, something I try to do every day in my office, something I know you're trying to do with this podcast is make sure people are aware of the things that they can do to not be that statistic, but it is, it's too high a number. And that number has been stubborn. You think about all the things that we've done over the last three decades, you know, the ICU, all these new stents and procedures that we have uh, to treat people with heart, all the new medicines that we have. And yet that number has been about the same. That's crazy though. Like the, the, they say the second leading cause of death is cancer. And they say there's no cure for a lot of that, but Medication can prevent. You're saying that a lot of this is preventative. Absolutely. I mean, it can be prevented. Like it, it, it can if you exercise or if you get if you get diagnosed early enough and you get on the right med- medication, like you got me on for a, for kind of a hereditary problem that I have, right? right? Which we've discussed on here before. It just I just don't understand the whole mindset of of taking that chance. Well, part of the problem is that, you know, the the main risk factors for heart disease are what we call silent killers. We've talked about this before too. You don't know that your blood pressure is high unless you get it measured. You don't know that your cholesterol is high unless you get it measured. And you can get it measured and somebody can tell you that it's abnormal and you need to fix it, but you feel fine. So a lot of people just don't take the necessary steps till it's too late, till they've already had a heart attack, they've already had a stroke. Um, then usually people get serious. Um, we call that that secondary prevention, that's preventing the second heart attack and stroke. What we tried to do with people like you, right, is identify that risk earlier and do primary prevention, prevent the first stroke and heart attack. You mentioned that cancer is the number two cause of death. I, I say it sometimes, I, I hope no one uh, takes offense at it, but my goal in my office is to make sure everybody dies of cancer. That's my goal. Really? By decreasing the risk of heart disease and, and because cardiovascular Because sooner or later in life, you're going to get something. People are going to die of something. Well, people are going to die of something. And uh, so most of the time, cardiovascular disease is preventable. So when you say it's preventable, 
we've talked about the the blood test for my daughter at 12 years old to finding out if she has this gene. Describe and explain that gene just so we can catch the audience up, doctor, one more time on what I have, that it is hereditary, it is genetics, and that you can, you know, 12 years old, you can go in and get a panel done and see it, they can start treating it at a young age to even get a, you know, a bigger jump on it. That's right. So um, you're in a relatively unique situation that you have a, a genetic cause of very high LDL or bad cholesterol. It's called familial hypercholesterolemia. It happens from one bad gene that codes for the LDL receptor, which is what pulls bad cholesterol out of the bloodstream. And that runs in families. Um, so 50% of all your first degree relatives um, will have that. But yeah, you can pick it up on a simple blood test. Um, and so if you do have a family history of heart disease or a family history of high cholesterol, um, it's important that you have that checked as early as possible. Maybe you need medicines, maybe you need lifestyle modification, but you can't treat it unless you know about it. And what is besides medications and exercise is the other treatable precautionary thing that we can do is our diet. I mean, it's is diet playing a huge role because I listen to a lot of people talk about fasting, red meat consumption, which is one of the Mm -hmm. things I want to talk about tonight. You know, 10 years ago, it was like eat less red meat. And now it's there's these people like carnivore diet, as much red meat as you can. Is nutrition a big part of it? Yes. So I think we got to separate out people like you who have a specific genetic abnormality that's not going to get better no matter what you do in terms of exercise, right? Um, That diagnosis that you have is... Uh, FH or familial hypercholesterolemia. Um, you also have elevations in a, another molecule that sometimes goes along with it called lipoprotein A. Uh, lipoprotein A is also completely genetically determined. It's a, a unique cholesterol molecule that increases the risk of heart disease. And once again, that's not going to be affected by diet and exercise, but it's something that your listeners should be getting checked along with their cholesterol panel. Uh, European guidelines say everybody should get it. So if you're one of these unique patients, uh, FH patients like yourself, it's about one in 200 people. You're going to need medicines. Um, there's there's just no way around it. You're going to need medicines. But for the vast majority of people who have high cholesterol, the vast majority of people don't have a specific genetic abnormality like you do, and they can get significant improvements in their cholesterol panel, in their blood pressure, in their sugar, and in their overall cardiovascular risk with lifestyle modification. So modification includes the exercise, the nutrition. Yeah, diet, exercise, weight loss, quitting smoking, and and not drinking too much. Let's hit on smoking one more time, which I've never, ever even taken a drag. I got the genetic part of this thing in my system, but heart disease is the leading death in America for causes of death. Is smoking the leading cause of heart disease? Uh, it's one of the leading causes of heart disease. It's got the closest association. So yeah, if you're at risk for heart disease, it's the worst thing that you can do of all of those um, is cigarette smoking. Why is that? Yeah, cigarette smoking does a lot of things. So number one, the heart attacks happen because there's a buildup of cholesterol plaque in the wall of the blood vessel. And smoking damages the blood vessel, um, causes that endothelium, that's the lining of the blood vessel, uh, to become injured. And then at those sites of injury, that's where cholesterol plaque builds up. Then if you have a plaque, a heart attack happens when that plaque becomes inflamed and ruptures and a blood clot forms on top of it. That's why heart attacks and strokes happen like this. So smoking takes that plaque that you already have and makes it more likely to rupture. So does two bad things, right? Causes more plaque Uh, and makes the plaque that you have more likely to rupture. And that's why it's, uh, you know, something that 
It's a tough habit to break. So easiest way is to do what you did, which is not start. Not start. And I'm looking for, <clears throat> we just did my panels. I came into your office and you were very pleased with them. But you had made a comment about, here's the one that medicine takes care of. And here's the one that exercise and lifestyle modification takes care of. And now I'm having a hard time. I know that I had them on here. Um, I'm probably not going to be able to find them now. I sort of remember what it looks like. So I'm going to keep looking while you yeah. talk. But what my LDLs, my HDLs, and my triglycerides were all pretty good. good real good, I think. Right. Really good. So you have a genetic abnormality that causes you to have high LDL cholesterol. That's the bad cholesterol. And high levels of this lipoprotein A. That is going to need medicine, right? And you're on the right medicine and we're keeping it. I can't remember what we have you on right now, uh, but whatever we got you on is keeping those levels low. But that doesn't help your triglycerides or your good cholesterol. Um, and that is what we're attacking with diet and exercise is your good cholesterol and your triglycerides. And your numbers look great last time I saw you. And what is a triglyceride? Ah, that's a great question. So triglycerides are a form of fat that is carried around on certain particles in the bloodstream. So there are basically gets a little bit into the weeds, but there's two types of bad cholesterol molecules. There's LDL cholesterol, which we've talked about, and then there's triglyceride-rich lipoproteins or TRLs. And uh, TRLs are what you want to reduce um, with diet and exercise. They're they're these triglyceride-rich lipoproteins. Triglycerides you accumulate in the blood when you're overweight, carry too much weight around your middle, eat too many carbohydrates. Um, sometimes eat too many, much fat, but it's mostly a matter of the type and quantity of carbohydrates. And then interestingly enough, it's that fat around your middle that really can uh, affect your triglyceride levels. So fat around the middle, which the midsection, the waistline, that part of it, how important is the overall body fat not BMI, but body fat percentage? Yeah. Like I look at the charts for my age and my my what do, what do they go by they go by they go by the measure the measurements age and height they go by the age and then you can get a dexa scan that can get really precise but how important is that overall body fat your whole body not just your waistline yeah. because they measure your leg they me and a lot of times with guys it is in the midsection their highest their highest measurement but as far as body fat percentage goes you want to be, you know, you can get to like 20% for a 50 year old man is considered excellent or very good. Um, where I'm going with this is lean muscle mass, which I texted you today about I'm working out and I have a good muscle mass. I got good strength. I got good fast twitch. I got good explosiveness. How important is muscle mass in your studies to the longevity of life in the terms of preventing you know, disease or preventing heart heart attacks or preventing falling down, obviously falling down, keeping your balance and breaking a hip is very important as you age. So how important is lean muscle mass and developing that and keeping it and maintaining it? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm glad you mentioned the last one because that's really the most important thing with, with muscle mass is, you know, balance and strength when you uh, uh, when you age, so I um, there's a, a few I'm, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but uh, there's a great podcaster who does a lot of 
of health and wellness, uh, Peter Atia, and he has gotten really into the weeds about this. And I think it's kind of interesting how he's decided he wants to figure out what he wants to do when he's 85 from a physical standpoint, yeah. right? And he's like, all right, well, what exercises and what you know body composition do I need at 55, knowing there's going to be a decline by the time he gets to 85? And I really like the way he explained that. So muscle mass is really important for that. When you start talking about body composition for cardiovascular health, Interestingly, it doesn't seem like it's overall fat content. It's specifically fat around your middle. Um, this is, you know, just speaking for heart attack and, and stroke risk and risk of diabetes. Um, that fat around your belly is metabolically active. So none of us like having jiggly underarm fat. Um, none of us, you know, we all, uh, want to, you know, have be lean, but, uh, you know, that fat is not metabolically active. The fat around your middle releases free fatty acids and other things into the bloodstream, which goes straight to the liver. And the liver has to do something with that, which is package it into these nasty cholesterol molecules, package it into sugar that gets released into the bloodstream. So the key measurement for predicting risk of cardiovascular disease is a simple waist circumference. It's more predictive than body fat composition, you know, body fat percentage or lean muscle mass. It's that weight around the middle. And I see a lot of patients, and sometimes this can be genetic, particularly common in South Asian Americans, um, Latin Americans, um, where you can be, you know, pretty, have a BMI that looks good, actually have a lot of muscle mass but still carrying a little bit of extra weight in their belly. And uh, that last bit of belly fat can make all the difference. What um, what amount are you talking? Like you see men and women that are obese, like four, five, 600 pounds, like that's extreme. Right. But what are you talking about? Like what amounts are you saying that is that is too much to have around the belly? Yeah, even, a, you know, some of the studies, you know, have, have, they've used different cutoffs. Certainly if you're above 40 inches in a man and above 35 in a woman, that's, you know, that's pretty much off the cliff in terms of, of risk. But it's kind of, you know, you can see down to about, it depends on, of course, on your height. But, you know, even, you know, having a waist circumference, if you're my height, I'm 5'8". If you have a, if you had a waist circumference of even 34 or 35 is worse than 32. And it's At really waist eight. circumference. Yeah. So it's waist circumference and... Where do you measure the waist at? Yeah, that's a great question. Because you yeah. wear your pants yeah, in waist size, pants, yeah. but like if you try to pull them up to your belly button, what is considered yeah, the waist? It's a, it's a great question. Uh, we It's just below the belly button. And then you got to make sure you make a circle, right? Because if you got love handles like I do, they'll ride up a little bit. Um, so you got to make sure you make a circle. You know, you can with probably the... I'm not advocating people do this, but it's how some of these studies are done is a CT scan. You can really uh, see the amount of fat, um, which is, you know, better, right? That's what you're actually looking for. It's more precise than just a waist circumference. But yeah, you know, if you ever, you know, any of your listeners ever get a CT scan of their belly for some other reason, you ask your provider to pull it up and show them the the fat that's there. Is and, that more uh, precise than a DEXA scan on total fat? For abdominal fat. For abdominal fat. So yeah. a DEXA scan gives you your overall, overall body. body fat percentage. Yeah. So when you start talking about modifications of your lifestyle, doctor, you'd mentioned just a couple minutes ago sugars. You all, we also just touched on smoking. Let's talk about alcohol consumption again to catch people up on this. You brought me a bottle of awesome wine. There's whiskey. Drink it in good health. Drink it in good health. 
There's a lot of sugar in this stuff. It breaks down. It can go to your, it affects your liver, uh, your bilirubins. Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Um, so talk to me a little bit about like smoking is a bad cause of heart disease, but is drinking because of the sugars or is it more on the diabetic side? How does drinking hurts you besides the obvious of don't drink and drive, don't become an addict, the liver, uh, cirrhosis of the liver, all that. How does it affect heart disease? Yeah. So first of all, you're lucky you don't live with a neurologist like I do. My wife's a neurologist and, uh, you know, alcohol is, is definitely a neurotoxin in the Alzheimer's literature. I hate when she quotes it to me because I do like a glass of wine or a nice bourbon or two. Um, there's really no level of alcohol consumption that's good for the brain. Um, so, you know, even a couple of drinks a day increases uh, dementia risk. I hate hearing that statistic. But for heart disease, you know, it looks like, you know, one to two drinks a day is probably okay for most people who aren't super challenged in terms of uh, of their sugars. You know, any more than that can start to raise blood pressure, um, can start to raise some of the triglycerides. I do think, though, the one thing that people have to think about or recognize is it's hard to lose weight if you're drinking much. I mean, it's sugar. It You know, we talk about, you know, not eating sweets and taking, getting concentrated you know, sugars out of your diet. It's concentrated sugar. There's no, there's no getting around it. I mean, you can try different low carbohydrate drinks and, um, but alcohol is a sugar. So, so if, no you, sugar. if you look up Jack Daniels, Tennessee yeah. sour mash whiskey, there's no sugar, no carbs. Yeah. There's no added sugar, right? Yeah. No sugar. No sugar. But it's a simple carbohydrate. It's uh, alcohol is a simple carbohydrate. Yeah, alcohol is. Yeah. So that's where you start to break those down into the sugars. Yeah. So alcohol is going to cause you not to be able to keep that waistline where you need it. A lot but, of, you the, know, that being said, a drink or two, I think is fine for most, you know, most of us. What uh, about the people that I've watched in my life though, from ranchers to barbers to old men that are dying in their eighties that drank their whole lives, like to the point to where my barber would cut my ear once in a while, but they live long. It's like they get pickled. But they're little. They never really got big. I get the beer belly syndrome. I understand that. But a lot of the the ranchers, you go up to like Ormachias or up to Elko or the Star and you hang out with some of these ranching families. It's I know they're active. They're on their horses. They're burning yeah. calories. They're working all day. That's a big thing to me is that if I had a lifestyle to where, you know, when I, it's hunting season, I'm a lot more active than I am when if I had a, like a landscaping job, let's say, or a construction job in the summertime, I would be in way better shape, easier without having to go to the gym so much. You know, I got lots of friends that have those, the manual labor lifestyle all year round and they're more, they burn more calories. Sure. You know, uh, you, for the blue zone people, you've, I'm sure you've read about the blue zones. Have uh-huh. you ever read about that? So blue zones, uh, it's this kind of cool. It's a sociologist who decided to study longevity. And he went around the world and tried to find communities where there were the largest number of people who lived into their 90s, lived healthily into their 90s, right? And were active and called those blue zones. So Okinawa is one. There's one in Costa Rica where I'm going next week. Um, there's uh, even the Seventh-day Adventists here in the, in the U.S. There's like, I, I can't remember, there's eight or nine of them. But most of them was one of the interesting findings was most of them drink a fair amount. But what they found was that they drank as part of their lifestyle. They didn't drink the way a lot of Americans do. They drank earlier in the day. So they tended to drink their alcohol with meals, which may affect, you know, the insulin sensitivity and all those things. They tended not to really over drink. They just drank every day. And, you know, it seems that that somehow is 
better for you than what we tend to do, which is, you know, drink too much, drink too late and drink just to drink. And uh, I've kind of tried to think about that a little bit and drink a little bit earlier in the day and try to enjoy it, uh, a drink with friends and with food more than, you know, just sitting back and having a couple of bourbons in the hot tub. So with your education and your knowledge added on with your wife's preaching to you, <laughs> why I asked my friend this on this podcast before, maybe two times I've asked him, why not just order water instead of a glass of wine and a beer? Why do we tell ourselves, like, do we want to go to that state of being buzzed? Because it's going to take more than one in most instances. Um, why do we do that? You think, are, are, are we wired to be gluttons? Are we wired to make decisions like that? Because I understand people, some people never touch alcohol, but most of them touch it too much. And then they say never again, and they get off of it for good. They have sobriety the rest of their lives. Why do we go to the bar and stand there and think that we have to have a 12 ounce beer? Do we love the taste of it? I don't know. I just, I can't figure out why we're so zoned in on alcohol when it comes to celebration, alcohol, when it comes to conversing, Meeting friends, at a, it's, it's a weird mindset to me. I'm not saying that I don't do it. I'm not saying yeah. I'm, a, I'm not on a box, I'm not on a soapbox, Dr. Block. I'm just saying, I wonder why why that is that we that we feel like we have to have an alcoholic beverage. I don't know. It's something that's made me, you know, I really thought a lot about it. I clearly have tried to drink less and it's hard. I like to drink. And I think it's, you know, first of all, alcohol has been in, you know, every culture around the world for a long time. So there's definitely something in our reward system that we like. One of the things I can just tell you just personally, and I think it's probably true of everybody, is that nothing feels better than that first drink or two. After that is sort of diminishing returns, right? You're just kind of trying to get back to that level of, of euphoria or whatever, whatever it is, or chill out a little bit. Um, that first drink or two, and after that, it's just kind of chasing something that's not there. I also think that in our culture, we've set up like early on in life. I mean, I've been drinking since I was in high school, and it was always part of celebrating. And just kind of like you said, I'm I'm uncomfortable being at a party or going out to dinner without ordering a drink. I mean, it's just it's like weird. it's just like just do it automatically. Yeah. And I think we've set it up as part of that reward. You know, you have just like with your kid, right? You're not supposed to give your kids candy anymore, right? We got candy all the time when I was young. When we did something, yeah, some good, and and so when our parents were proud of us, they gave us candy, and that sets up all these weird reward. Things you're not supposed to give your kids candy. I think you're not supposed to give me alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so yeah, it is an interesting, interesting thing, but it's it's certainly pervasive. How does alcohol consumption affect blood pressure? Yeah. So usually, right after you have those couple of drinks, blood pressure is low. I have patients coming in all the time saying, "Ah, look, you know, right after I drink, you tell me not to drink as much, but right after I drink, my blood pressure is low because it does. It sort of chills you out a little bit and lowers the blood pressure right when you're intoxicated, but that next morning and i'm not even talking first thing in the morning i'm talking like four five six almost the entire almost the entire next day yeah your blood pressure is high and that it's highest at that morning when you first not that you're necessarily hung over but that time you know you'd be hung over and that happens to be the time the most heart attacks and strokes occur are in those early morning hours and so you know once again that's it affects blood pressure that next day and the next day and the next day um, it increases the sympathetic nervous system and so definitely you know anything more than a couple of drinks a day will increase your blood pressure I would think that for me to be the most ultimately healthy 
I'm speaking to mine. You've seen my blood work. I found it. Now it probably disappeared again. <laughs> I don't ever want to think that I would all just be 100% sober because I enjoy it. But I really feel like what you just said puts a, a, a nervous tick in my brain of that next day. Like it might not necessarily be like I need, I don't go get gym boys and I don't go get grease and I don't need that. But I, I sense it. I can sense it like in my head. My nervous system is off a little bit. And I can just tell my blood pressure is higher because of those drinks the night before. And the easy thing to do or the smart thing to do, I should say, not easy, but smart is stop doing it. Stop having more than those two drinks. But then it's like, well, how do you stop? Like there's ways like the hard 65 or the hard 75, I think they call it. It's like this diet plan where you read and you you cut out this and you eat this much and you work out twice a day and you cut out all alcohol. A lot of the extreme diets cut out all alcohol. Right. They, yes, it's the easiest. You, you got to get rid of it a hundred percent. My lifestyle is not conducive to that unless I was ultra, ultra disciplined, but I don't know if I have it in me to do it. And I, and I'm fighting that all the time because I love life so much. I, in my daughter and, and you know how we yeah, all love life. Yeah. I don't want a major accident to happen like it did with my dad at 54. He's dead of a heart attack again. He didn't live as healthy as I do. He didn't work out as much as I do. He enjoyed desserts way too much. Plus the Fin Fin diet, which we could talk about your, I don't know your history and education on that, but I feel like it could have had something to do with the way his heart Mm -hmm. uh, reacted to that diet and that pill. Um, And then obviously the hereditary part of it with the cholesterol and the blood pressure and stuff like that. His dad died at 49 of a heart attack. That's scary stuff. I'm going to be 50 next year. I just turned 49 in October. So like I'm creeping up on those ages of like, they say the average heart attack in America is between 68 and 74. That's young, right? Think about how young that is. I, it's young, I'm but 57 my dad was 54. years old, for God's sake. You're That's, 57. My yeah. dad was 54 dead. Yeah, yeah, right. But they're saying the average is yeah. 20 years from where I'm at right now, mm-hmm. 18 years. But it just seems like if I just said, I'm not going to drink anymore. I just don't know if it's realistic. Yeah. I don't you can't know live scared is my well, point. Exactly. Huh? I don't even know if it's worth it either. You know, I, I like I said, I've, I've struggled with this for a, a long time. I drank too much when I was younger. I try not to drink too much now. Moderation is obviously the key. It's just finding a way to do that. So I can just tell you what I've tried to do personally. And if Melissa was sitting here, she would talk about the limited success I've had. <laughs> like it's been limited success. Like I woke up with a migraine on my kids are home from college and I had, too many. I had some red wine that was no good for my head and drank too much the other night, woke up with a migraine. And um, so I don't know how successful I've been, but trying to drink earlier and drink less. So I, one of the things I do now, I mean, these are just little things, but you know, just being a little more intentional, I order a cocktail at the you know restaurant. I'll uh, drink it down to just about gone. And then rather than just automatically ordering another one, because my drink's empty, I'll just take my water glass, pour it into that glass that had my bourbon and my old fashioned in it. It's still got a little bit of that taste, right? It's yeah. obviously watered down, but it's in the right glass. It's in the right, you know, and I, I can, you know, and I can wait another half an hour before I get another drink. Um, you know, sometimes having a, a water in between. Um, I've even, you know, I don't really love them, but a non-alcoholic beer, you know, sometimes, sometimes I'll do the trick. It's interesting. I uh, I also, you know, my kids, when they were young, we got a breathalyzer, you know, because I was like, you yeah, better not come home with any alcohol in your breath. And there's not going to be any argument about it. Right. So I got this breathalyzer and been carrying it around with me uh, for the last few years. And it is, you know, it's interesting. Right. And uh, 
Uh, it's one of the ways I'm like, well, shit, I better not drive. So that sometimes will make me drink a little bit less. Yeah. We're going to break here for a few commercials. Thank you all very much. A bit of bad news. We have to get to a break. There's a lot of discussions around heart disease, how it can happen. And we didn't even get into stress. It's probably the most deadly silent killer, right? Stress. I think you nailed it. I think that's right. But don't stress because Corning Ford, Oakley Sunglasses, Lear, and Traeger Grills are making sure this life ain't for everybody with Chad Belding and special guest Dr. Michael Block will return in a moment. So get that heart rate up and stick around. Hey, everybody, you know, we are a huge fan of Jack Daniels, not just their product, but their mission, their culture, Lynchburg, Tennessee, the people. And we want to introduce you to the Jack Daniels Single Barrel Program. Join us at jackdaniels.com and learn about the Single Barrel Program, visiting Lynchburg, Tennessee, participating in a barrel tasting, a whiskey tasting, picking your favorite flavor, whether it's the burn in your mouth, whether it's the maple, whether it's the different combination of flavors that you are going to experience in each of the distinct bottles of Jack Daniels Single Barrel. You're going to be able to choose the best one, your favorite one, and purchase that entire barrel. It all comes bottled in individual single barrel bottles. You get your own hanging name tag, brand tag, your logo on it. You can give them away as gifts. Go knock on the door of a landowner and say, thank you for letting me hunt your field. There's so many options with the Jack Daniels Single Barrel Program. We're proud to be part of it. We have introduced it to so many of our friends and family across the country, whether it was at a business, whether it was at a duck lodge, whether it was at a conservation event. It is truly an awesome program. Learn more about it at jackdaniels.com. The single Single Barrel Program. We've been involved for the last five years. I'm looking at two of my barrels right now. We just got our 2023 barrel in the Single Barrel Rye. Absolutely mesmerizing. My brother Clint's old fashions with it. Speak for themselves. It's the Jack Daniels Single Barrel Program. Check it out. Learn about it. I hope you decide to visit Lynchburg, Tennessee and get your own barrel. Thank you very much. Looking for a high-quality truck accessory that's built to last? Look no further than Lear. With over 50 years of experience in the industry, these guys know what it takes to make your ride look and performance best. Whether you're looking for a fiberglass or aluminum cap, a hard or soft cover, or accessories to customize your truck, Lear's got you covered. Their products are made with only the best materials, and their innovative features provide added convenience and security for truck owners. Head over to Lear.com to explore their range of products and take your driving experience to the next level. We travel a lot. We're up and down America's highways, byways, thoroughways, cornfields, dirt roads, back roads, country roads. Love seeing that dust in our rear view. Love looking over and seeing the sun set, the sun rise, mallard ducks pitching in to a pond in Kansas, a coyote howling in Wyoming, an antelope standing on the side of the road in Nevada. We get to do this all through Ford trucks. Corning Ford, Paul. Francis, the entire crew, the customer service, the service department, the selection, the dedication to excellence and quality, the number one Ford Super Duty dealer in the West United States five years in a row. They're in the top 10 in the country and they're in a little tiny town, Corning, California. 5,000 people deep maybe, but the construction, the farming, the ranching, the almonds, the walnuts, the olives, the duck hunting, the fishing, the deer hunting and turkey hunting, predator hunting, you name it. Corning Ford is part of it. They support our lifestyle, their pricing. They refuse to mark them up. Give them a try. They'll deliver your truck anywhere in the country. They've delivered them to Alaska, Florida, so many to Nevada, so many to Northern California, all over Arizona and Colorado. They've delivered three to Tennessee. They delivered one to Minnesota to our friend Andrew at Wild Acre Kennels. It's Corning Ford. 
they support the outdoors and there's nothing better than a Ford truck. These 2023 Ford Super Duties F250s, F350s, the long bed, the short bed, the tremor package. Watch your speed. Set that cruise control because sometimes you'll look down and be like, I'm not going that fast. Something's got to be broken. And you're pulling a trailer and you got a leer topper on the back of it. The bed of your truck is full. They're meant for hauling. They're meant for towing. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, Paul. There's nowhere better in the country to buy your next Ford vehicle or Ford Super Duty truck than Corning Ford. Thank you all for supporting them. With the new year here, it's high time to lose that spare tire. Where do you measure the waist at? That's a great question. Because you yeah. wear your pants yeah, in waist size. Pants, yeah. But like if you try to pull them up to your belly button, what is considered yeah. the waist? It's just below the belly button. Hey, bust out the 300-foot-long tape. What amounts are you saying that is too much to have around the belly? Certainly if you're above 40 inches in a man and above 35 in a woman, that's pretty much off the cliff in terms of risk. Mickey Thompson Tires, Flask Gap, and Rigid Lights are proud to bring you the conclusion of Jack Daniels Presents This Life Ain't For Everybody with Chad Belding featuring Dr. Michael Block. Let's return to the show. When it comes to, you mentioned with heart disease and cholesterol pertaining to it, that I have to be on this medicine. Let's reiterate that. 100%. I have to be on, I cannot control that through diet. 100%. Or exercise. Back to blood pressure now. Once you're on a blood pressure medication, can you get healthy enough to come off of blood pressure meds? Some people can, absolutely. And we can certainly decrease medicine sometimes in people, 100%. You know, it does, lifestyle modification does improve blood pressure. So um, drinking less, eating better, losing weight. Now, you're fighting genetics. Um, you've pretty much done all those things. I mean, the one thing, maybe you drink a little bit too much. And, but, you know, your diet's great. You exercise like a madman. And, uh, you know, you're still on a blood pressure medicine. But if you didn't do those things, you'd probably be on two medicines or three medicines or doing one of the new procedures that we, we do at Renown um, to get your blood pressure down. So, you know, it's, it's usually, for most people, it's a combination of a little bit of medicine, a lot of lifestyle change. This is going to sound like a really dumb question, but I got to ask it. The cholesterol medicine mixed with the blood pressure medicines, mixed with everyday vitamins, mixed with asthma medicine, mixed with allergy shots. Does any of this come back to bite you in the ass when it comes to heart disease, when you have that much medicine? Can medicine affect your blood pressure and your heart disease, even though you're prescribing it with what you do with your with your studies, you're, you're prescribing it. But can any of that come back to get me when it just pertaining to heart disease or blood pressure? Not like I understand there's going to be side effects. I get that. But and I don't experience any of them. I just I just know that when you think of pharmaceuticals as a whole, there's always that side effect conversation. But can they come back to get you when it comes to heart disease or blood pressure? You know, I would say that with our established medicines, you know, no. But we've been burned before. We have been burned before. And we always talk about, you know, it's the reason we need to do these big studies and we need to do long-term studies is making sure there's no, we call this these sometimes off-target effects, right? So yeah, your cholesterol lowers your cholesterol, but it does something else that, you know, might increase your risk of heart disease. So, you know, there are off-target effects. I was a very, when I was in the early part of my career practicing in, in New York, I was uh, very popular because I was prescribing a lot of hormone replacement therapy uh, to women who had heart disease. Because at the time, it raises good cholesterol. Hormone replacement therapy lowers sugar, raises good cholesterol. You'd think just on its surface that that would be you know helpful. But we did long-term studies. I was actually a part of those long-term studies in the Women's Health Initiative. And it turns out that contrary to what we thought, 
we're actually increasing the risk of heart disease because of some of the other effects that estrogen has. So it's always something that's worth thinking about. But I think that, you know, in cardiovascular disease, we're lucky because we do a lot of big studies um, and we really look for those things. So the stuff you're on, I'm not worried about. One of my favorite things in life is red meat. I eat a lot of deer. Last night I ate elk. Today for lunch, I ate elk. Real lean elk. Love ducks, love geese. A little bit higher in fat content there Mm -hmm. with the skin and the oils in it. And I love beef. I love a good ribeye. I love a good New York strip or a filet or whatever. I love... I love barbecue, some barbecue, beef barbecue, like Texas style, briskets and stuff, right? Is red meat the devil when it comes to heart disease? Yeah. So I'm going to say no, but there's a lot of debate about it. And I'll kind of frame some of the issues for you. So the first problem that people who eat a lot of red meat have, well, I guess first problem we have with studying any of this is you can't just look at one thing on your plate, right? can't can't, right? You can't separate out one aspect of diet. So one of the problems with people who eat a lot of meat is they tend to eat a lot of starches. We know that those starches are bad. Rice, potatoes, you know, things that you tend to have with your red meat. We also know that a lot of things that you're putting on that meat are not super healthy. Barbecue sauce got a shit ton of sugar in it, right? Um, You know, a Bernays sauce, all that kind of stuff that you're, a way that meat tends to be prepared. So you got to separate all that out from the conversation, right? Because that's part of the problem is what people tend to eat with red meat. And then you really come to, all right, well, what's in red meat? There's some saturated fat, yeah, which can increase LDL cholesterol a little bit. But we just had this big discussion about how it's hard to change LDL cholesterol with diet. So I don't worry too much about the saturated fat in red meat. There are a few people out there in my profession who think that in and of itself, heme protein, you know, which is in red meat, heme protein, same thing it's in hemoglobin, is just bad for us. It just causes inflammation and heart disease. I don't think there's a lot of data for that. You know, there was this, you mind if I give you some details about oh, yeah, a study? I love this. Yeah. So there was a study that was done in, in Loma Linda among Seventh day Adventists. It's probably our best study looking at meat eaters versus non-meat eaters, uh, vegetarians and vegans versus meat eaters. And what they did in this study is they took a bunch of Seventh-day Adventists and they followed them for like, they had to keep track of their diet and they followed them for like five years. And they divided them basically into two groups, those who ate meat and those who didn't eat meat. At the end of five years, I may have the exact outcome is five or seven or nine or however many years it was, there was the same risk of heart disease in the two groups. The the meat eaters and the not meat eaters had the same risk of heart disease. People who did the study, though, didn't like that answer. That's not what they were looking for. So they took the people who were eating, who were not meat eaters, the vegans and vegetarians, and they said, well, let's get rid of from that group that's in the study. We're going to exclude all the people who have a crappy diet score. Because remember, Doritos are vegetarian, right? You can eat a lot. Donuts are vegetarian or vegan, right? So let's take an only look at healthy non-meat eaters. Sorry, healthy non-meat eaters and compared to meat eaters. Well, guess what? Healthy non-meat eaters had less heart disease than all meat eaters, but they didn't do the same thing in the meat eater group, right? They didn't separate the meat eaters into those who had a healthy diet and those who didn't have a healthy diet. So, you know, people have looked at that study and said, ah, see, this shows that, you know, eating meat increases the risk of heart disease. And I just don't think that's what that study shows. I think what that study shows is there's really no difference. What I've come to really think about a lot is we're probably asking the wrong question. 
It's not what we eat. It's what the animal ate that I think is the real issue. I think if that animal was raised on crappy food in a feedlot, eating food it wasn't designed to eat, fattened up in an unnatural way, and then slaughtered and put on your plate, that's probably not that healthy. And it doesn't have a lot of nutritional value. But most of everything that you talked about, right? Those are animals that are out eating healthy food for the, for the animal, right? They're eating uh, a range of diet that's appropriate for their physiology. I think that's fine and that's healthy. But I think we haven't looked at that enough. So you, as, in your position as a uh, medical trained physician, you will eat a ribeye? Oh, I love eating meat. I, I, I eat almost all meat and vegetables. That's so do you almost eat a lot all of red meat or are you mostly mm-hmm. fish? No, I eat, I eat a lot of uh, red meat, although I've tried to eat more buffalo. I've tried to eat definitely if I, uh, so I eat a lot of bison, uh, you know, fair amount of antelope um, when I can get it. And, you know, more pork than I used to. Um, but yeah, I'll still eat red meat. We had ribeyes last night, actually. I'd like grass fed when I can get it. Um, you know, sometimes it's just not that easy to get. Well, I'm going to give you some tonight. I'm going to give you some tonight. So I, I do, but I think it's something that we haven't looked at enough. It's what is the animal eating? Because of course, I mean, it just kind of, you know, when you, when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. We're well, eating whatever the animal ate. So a free range deer eating grass or alfalfa is not with, it's not being injected with anything, steroids, in any of that. It's very healthy meat. I think so. Very healthy meat. It's wild salmon. That's not a farm raised salmon. Very healthy meat. Okay. So, but you also made mention that you mainly eat meat and vegetables, complex carbohydrates and vegetables. I get that. Mm-hmm. So will you go to a sushi bar and eat? nigiri with some rice with your fish um or do you stay away from carbs i'd rather have i'd rather have sashimi so you're so you're pretty much starch free pretty much um you know not perfect um part of it is i've always eaten that way it's just i was a wrestler growing up and so i was always cutting weight and i don't know i've always um i'd come home from wrestling practice and i'd find i'd have my mom make me a steak I'd have steak and broccoli. And I found it was like a great way. Like I'd have steak and broccoli every day during wrestling season. And I found I was able to maintain my weight. I just kind of got used to eating that way. And I've always eaten like that. I just have never really liked starches that much. So it's made it kind of easy. I don't like sweets. I, I usually order a drink for dessert rather than uh, uh, any sweets. So yeah, I really have, have, have stayed away from simple carbs. And I think that's an important distinction, right? Stay away from simple carbohydrates. Uh, so you don't eat Italian. I, I will go to an Italian restaurant, but you know, I, I always go for the second plate, not the pasta plate. Right. Don't go to the pasta so plate. yeah, I'll get veal. I'll get you know. Uh, so I like Italian restaurant, but I'll get a you know salad and you know then you know a, a meat rather than a pasta. Um, so I think it's a small study. It's just two of us in my household growing up. My sister loves carbohydrates. Loves carbohydrates. Always ate carbohydrates. I mean, you can't see me on this podcast, but I'm pretty lean. I've never really struggled with my weight. Weigh the same now as I did when I uh, graduated from, from college. I uh, My sister's always struggled with her weight. My sister got breast cancer when she was 30 years of age. And she's always eaten like tons of simple carbohydrates. Obviously, there's a lot more than just that. I'm sure we're d- different genetically in a lot of ways. 
But yeah, we grew up in the same household and she's always struggled with her weight and I never have. As far as a, a carbohydrate goes, a starch, is there any other effects in heart disease or blood pressure that they have besides their breaking down into sugars and causing you to not lose weight, causing you to gain weight, causing your waistline to be bigger? Do they play another role at all um, for somebody that's in my position with, with the genetics I have? Yeah. So they uh, do a couple of things. They increase those triglyceride rich lipoproteins. So those increase. They probably increase blood pressure, although it hasn't been well studied, but it's my belief that they do. And they cause insulin resistance. If you put a piece of white bread in your mouth, it dissolves, right? You don't need to chew it. It just dissolves. It's essentially sugar. And that hits your stomach and your blood sugar goes up and insulin has to come up to drive that out of your bloodstream. So it's eating many of our simple carbohydrates are the same thing as taking a teaspoon of sugar. It has the same effects. So that insulin resistance raises blood pressure and does a whole bunch of bad things that increase the risk of heart disease. I think simple carbohydrates are are, are right up there with our biggest you know problems. And, and part of it is... Uh, is due to a public health response that was misguided, you know, back in the, you know, years ago where we told people to stop eating fat and people start eating lots of carbohydrates and we saw what happened, right? Oh, rates of obesity shot up. Rates of diabetes have shot up. And you just read me all the statistics on heart disease that despite all these new treatments has stayed high. And it's because we eat way too many carbohydrates. Okay. So moving on from carbohydrates, but staying on part of nutrition and supplementation, is it okay if I go and get HGH? Can I can I go get a doctor to prescribe me HGH, human growth hormone, or can I go get TRT? I know the answer because you already told me when I told you I wanted to get on it. I went and did all the testing and uh, my levels were already in the 700s and they're like, well, we want to bring you to 1100, 1200. I'm like, but then you made mention <clears throat> that your body will stop producing it on its own if you supplement it. It could. Is that stuff going to be detrimental to my long-term health? Because- I want to do everything in my power to live. Right. Okay. I don't need to look like Ronnie Coleman or Schwarzenegger. I want to live. I want to have muscle mass. I want to be strong. I want to be fit. I want to be lean, but maybe I have to cheat a little bit. I don't even take a pre-workout. I don't take a BCAA. I don't take a protein shake. I do nothing. Sometimes I worry I don't get enough protein for, to develop muscle with the, the working out I do. Talk to me, doctor, a little bit about supplementation could it be detrimental to a guy like me? This will tell somebody, go get your blood work done. Go see where you're at. Get with a qualified physician if you're going to monitor this stuff. How, how would you, do you do that kind of stuff in your profession or, or, or what is your experience with that? And what would you tell somebody like me? Yeah. So, you know, testosterone therapy we'll start with because that's kind of the most, I think, well worked out. If you have low testosterone levels, I'm talking really low testosterone levels, 100s, 200s, even maybe 300s, and you take a modest dose of testosterone to boost that into a quote unquote normal level, 500 or so, There's, we've done actually studies that show that, that that does not increase cardiovascular risk, right? So getting your testosterone levels up to the 400s, 500s is fine. What I think is bad for you is going to, anytime we try to overshoot what's physiologically normal, we end up in trouble, right? I told you the story with female post-menopausal uh, hormone replacement therapy. I think it's the same thing for men. You know, I, it's not nothing natural about having a testosterone level of 1,100. 
raises blood pressure in my experience is not well studied because no one will ever do that study because no one thinks it's appropriate to get your testosterone level to 1100 except for the couple of folks who prescribe it and they'll never do the studies because they just want to keep prescribing it. I'm not saying that they're, they believe in what they're doing. They just, they don't believe in studying it. Um, so I do think that supranormal levels of testosterone are not helpful. I've had a couple of patients come to my office just sweating and like you could just tell that they were taking way too much testosterone. My blood pressure's always been fine and their blood pressure's way up and um, you know, you measure their testosterone levels and it's twelve hundred. You know, it's just that's not that's I don't think that's okay for someone in their who's sixty years old. That's just I don't think that's healthy. Now, like I say, if your levels are low and you want to get to a normal level, you want to try to boost yourself to where you are naturally, like I think that's okay. I think that's okay. HGH is not as well worked out. We just haven't studied it as much, despite the fact, it kind of drives me crazy, right? It's been available for you know, my whole career, and yet we still don't have a lot of good data on it. My suspicion is it's kind of the same thing. A little bit is okay. A lot is probably bad. So are you a doctor that would prescribe HGH and monitor it? Do you do that? I don't. What kind of doctor would do that? Yeah, it's mostly, you know, there's... Uh, endocrinologists, certainly if there's a deficiency, will do it, right? So if you truly, you know, have super low testosterone levels or other hormone levels, an endocrinologist is the type of doctor who sees that. But most people who are getting HGH and, and getting testosterone therapy are going to specific anti-aging providers, right? That's that's their specialty. They're mostly internists or family practice docs. Some have been urologists. I know a really good friend of mine who's a nephrologist who just opened a practice like that. So kind of they kind of cut, cut across specialties. Um, but because it doesn't, I'm a cardiovascular guy, and because it doesn't reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, I don't prescribe it. And I usually tell people exactly what I told you, right? If you know they come to me and somebody else wants to prescribe it, like, all right, what are your levels? Like, let's, for levels are 200, and you want to get to 500? That seems totally reasonable, right? That's you're going to be able to work out better, which is which is necessary for your health. Um, it's going to you know drop your waist circumference. Like those are all good things. But going from 500 to 1100, that I don't think so. Not needed. Not needed. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. It may be harmful. Maybe harmful. Maybe harmful. Hmm. I got to cheat somehow, though. No, you don't. I've been telling myself. But why do you need to cheat? Well. You just you just told me about your trip you just got back from where you were you know doing something different every day but you never mentioned that you were tired sore short of breath like not able to do something you're able to do all the things you want to do right why do you need to cheat true you look you look great you feel great that's what I was telling my trainer today Doctor Block is that I watch people like I'm an observer of people that's what I've done my whole life I guess it's called people watching but I do it in a way of like comparatively. Where are they at? Why are they there? What's causing it? Where am I at compared to that? Could I be doing something better because that guy looks better than me or is performing better than me? And I watch on a daily basis of most people are not in good shape. It's crazy to me to see how they struggle to be strong, to be able to to do things that are that require a pretty good amount of strength, but consistently do it. Like do an hour of, of, of nonstop labor. Now I'm not saying that I'm, that everybody's like this. I'm talking about in my observations. It, do you think across the board, obviously we have an obesity problem and I'm not even talking about obesity, mm-hmm. but as popular as the gym phase is and workout clothes and, and the marathons and the ultra marathons and, and, and the biking and all of the stuff, 
are we lacking big time in physical fitness or people that actually do calorie burns during the day or try to get in shape? Are we lacking big time still with our ability to do it? Like, are most people not working out at all? Big time. Like, we are lacking big time. I think most people are either not working out at all or they're doing some repetitive exercise that has become kind of easy for them that is not increasing their strength that much. You know, you go to the gym all the time. If you do the same exercise every, you know, every other day, you're going to get really good at that exercise. Does yeah. that mean you're strong? Right. I, when I, I was in medical school, it's kind of embarrassing. I was in, a, we had a, in medical school, we had a bench pressing competition. Like we had little guys and big guys. I'm obviously a little guy. And we spent like the last 18 months of medical school all training for this last like, big, you know, day of like who could bench press the most on whatever day it was in the spring, my fourth year of medical school. So I won and I've never been in worse shape in my life, right? Really? Because that's, that's all I did was bench press, right? And because uh, I wanted to win this stupid ass contest. And uh, yeah, never been in worse shape in my life. I exercised every other day, but, um, you know, <laughs> my back was underdeveloped. My legs weren't strong. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a complex issue. Um, and I get that people don't have time and I get that people are under stress and I get that there's, you know, that people want a shortcut. Um, what was the term you didn't use shortcut? You used, uh, like to get a shot. Um, cheating. Uh, I want, yeah, I want to cheat a little bit, want to kind of cheat the process. Um, but it's just not kind of how it works, unfortunately. That blue zone thing I was talking about, you know, one of the things that they found is that nobody in those blue zones went to the gym. Really? It's not what they did. They worked. They did what you did last week when you were you know, out on your trip. They had physical activity as part of their lifestyle. That, that Peter Atia guy, remember I told you about? The guy yeah, who's like, like, well, Peter I want to, I want to do what I'm going to be able to do when I'm 85, you know? And so yeah. how do I plan that when I'm 55? He's, he doesn't go to the gym. He does his erg machine and things like that, but he's, he's gotten really into rucking, like carrying around a pack. Cause yeah. he's like, that's, that's like strength is like going out in the hills and carrying around a pack. Um, yeah. He also so. is the one that did the study or did the conversation on, Lean muscle mass will increase longevity of life by 200%. That was his, that's the way he worded it. I really don't know that. I'm not smart enough. It's yeah. above my pay grade. But back to the beginning of our conversation, and you just kind of segued into it with your bench press competition. Why is lean muscle mass good? I mean, obviously it's good, but you can have too much muscle, I think. I think yeah. that your heart can be affected by too much muscle or probably the steroids it takes to get too much muscle if you would go that route. But why does he say that? Do you agree yeah. with it that muscle mass is going to increase longevity? So I think there's there's two there's two things, right? There's lean and there's muscle mass. He and I, you know, he has his opinions. I got my opinions. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of data to back either one of us because you can't separate out, you know, a lot of these things, right? People who exercise tend to eat better, also tend to have more lean muscle mass. They tend to be thinner. They tend to be, right? These things all kind of group together. To me, my opinion is there's the lean part of it, which decreases cardiovascular risk. And then there's the muscle mass part of it, which keeps you from having falls, breaking your hip, being debilitated, getting pneumonia, and those kind of things. 
So I think they're both important, but for different reasons. I'm a cardiovascular guy, so I think the lean part is more important. But for those other things, for longevity, I do think that the muscle mass is important. And I tell my patients all the time that you gotta, my older, older patients, right? Um, probably I'm telling them too late. You know, that you got to move, you got to keep up your exercise and keep up your, your strength, your leg strength so you can support yourself and, and stay healthy and keep from being frail. Why lean though? What does lean have so to do with this specifically? Lean is, is, what you know, is lean? So lean just means not fat. So lean is not fat. So, you know, there's not the muscle itself isn't any different, right? It's that you're, uh, you've seen people at the gym who have a lot of muscle mass, but also a big belly. They're not, they don't have lean muscle, right? They're have, they're not lean with, um, they have increased muscle mass, but they're not lean, right? So you lean just means, you know, not, not fat. So it's that back to that initial conversation where we started about like waist circumference, right? So you don't want to just put on weight. You don't want to just put on muscle mass on top of your fat belly. Right, you want to lean, trim out, and build muscle. They're both important. So important, and not to mention the mental and therapeutic and the the confidence building part. Like it's, I guess I'm kind of being an a hole when I say this. But I just don't think you can be happy fat. Everybody always said fat and happy. I just don't think you can be comfortable. I don't think you feel good. You don't like looking in the mirror. I don't know. I'm not saying that you can't. Yeah, Obviously, yeah. there's not studies that support that. But when, when I, I would just think that most of us would strive to be as sexy as we can be, to be as lean as we can be, to be the most aesthetically pleasing to ourselves and our mates as we can be. It doesn't change the person you are, but I would think that inside mentally that people that aren't moving as good or they're sore all the time or they're tired all the time, they're, they're, they got big bellies and, you know, they're obese or they're fat. They would be considered fatter out of shape i just don't again i'm not trying to sound like that guy judging i'm just saying like yeah. i just don't think that you could be that you wouldn't stay that happy for that long if you're in that position i can tell you some of the the people i have in my practice who are the happiest and have improved their cardiovascular risk the most are those who were 50 pounds overweight and are now 25 pounds overweight right so it's a lot of it is relative. Yeah. Um, and, you know, aesthetics are, are a tough part of it, right? Aesthetics can be a motivator, but it's hard. I, I think you've probably never really struggled with your weight. Um, have you? I don't know. I don't I've know. never gotten real bad. Yeah. But I'm, but I'm very critical of myself. You're very, yeah. You're very and I'll get down on myself in a heartbeat, yeah. which is not healthy. Right. And I think you can imagine if you're like 40 pounds overweight and you want to lose 40 pounds, how just, you know, that you're just never going to be that, the guy in the Armani suit that you're looking at and the, you know, the, you're never going to reach that level of aesthetics, but you can get healthy, right? And, it, you know, losing 25 pounds, if you're 40 pounds or 50 pounds overweight, can have a dramatic effect on your life. That's what can I'm trying to say. Your That's energy, what my point was. But you, you still be overweight, still be, you know, obese, but, you know, just in, you know, have an improvement. And, and that's where I think sometimes perfect is the enemy of good. You have these patients who come in and they want to lose 50 pounds. They want to lose 60 pounds. So well, everyone who's lost 50 or 60 pounds started by losing 20. You can't lose 50 or 60 pounds without losing 20. No. Like let's start there. 
you know, it takes, you know, as, as you know, right, it takes a lot of regimentation around eating, takes a lot of regimentation around exercise. We actually have some medicines now that can really help with it. Unfortunately, uh, there's really unequal access to those medications. But I do think it's, you know, it, it is one of those situations where perfect is the enemy of good. I've seen so many patients who lose 20 pounds and are unhappy. Or they come into my office, I'll make a three-month follow-up, and they've lost six pounds over that three months, two pounds a month, and they're unhappy. You know what weight loss two pounds a month is for two years? Yeah. It's 25 pounds, yeah. right? That's great. That's that's You're doing awesome. But we've set up this- No, it's 50 pounds. It's 50 pounds. Yeah, 50, 50 pounds. pounds. You know, so we've set up this you know, sort of, everyone wants to do it right away. Everybody wants quick fix. Everybody- um, well, it's not like you got that big belly overnight. That's right. That's so right. it's going to take a little bit. It takes just right. as long to get it off, if not longer. Right. That's right. That's right. And it's, it's not what you eat today that affects you tomorrow. It's what you ate like a week ago that you're going to start seeing the effects. Or That's another misconception is like, man, I ate bad last night. I gained three pounds. No, you might have gained three pounds from what you ate three or four days ago. And then it continues because it catches up. You know, like what I did yesterday, well, I'll start seeing the effects of that in, in three to five days from now. At least that's how I've seen it personally with myself is I go to the gym and I'm not maybe getting the results that I've got going a full week. But that week before I wasn't very tied in. I wasn't very disciplined. I might've had like this last trip, I ate ice cream three times on this trip. I hadn't eaten ice cream in three years, but we were back in the Midwest and they're like these custards and these homemade deals. So I tried it and I'm like, oh, this is good. But I really am pretty good at staying away from sweets, right? I would think that that would be the first thing, first thing in a, in a person's mind that to want to lose weight. People, I've seen a lot of people that don't drink much that are still pretty big, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's not just alcohol that causes people to gain weight. Absolutely not. It's, it's there. I would think that the sweets would be the easiest one to cut out, but it's like everywhere you look, it's like even like sweet sourdough bread warm with butter on it at a steakhouse. First thing they bring out, tortilla chips at a Mexican restaurant, right? You got, you get a little bit of that salsa on there and you, you overindulge in that stuff. I think if people would, control that part of it those little tiny improvements would start to compound a little bit and i think and where i'm going with that and we'll end it by this is a real easy way i guess is portion control just you don't have to be a glutton every meal you don't have to go back for seconds control that enjoy it but don't overindulge and don't overdo your portions right and then obviously the starches are huge because i see when i do no starch it's it's night and day with how I feel and with how the weight falls off. It is. I'll, portion control, and it's importantly what you eat, really does. Weight loss is a lot about, the term we use is satiety, which is feeling full or not being hungry. Why do you think you go to a Mexican restaurant and the first thing they do is put those tortilla chips out in front of you, right? They're free. Yeah. Why is it when you go to your Italian restaurant, first thing they do is put that white bread out in front of you? It's free. Yeah. They want you to feel full when you leave there when they give you a little bit of the entree. Nah, what they want is, so your mom always said, what'd she say? Clean don't, up your plate. Don't fill, don't fill up on that, you know, wait yeah. till you get your whatever. So it turns out the restaurant, they don't understand physiology, but they understand sales. If you eat simple carbohydrates at the beginning of your meal, chips, bread, having a cocktail before your meal, but the chips and the bread are the really easy one. You're going to be more likely, as studies have shown this, people will be more patrons, more likely to order dessert, and more likely to drink more. Wait, say that again? If, so you, if you have, when you have sit down at that Italian meal and eat that white bread, or you sit down at a Mexican restaurant 
and eat those chips, people, when they do that, they give that to you. And if you eat it, you're more likely to order dessert and more drinks. Because what it does is it's sugar. So you take that sugar in, insulin levels go way up, right? To drive that sugar out of your bloodstream. And guess what happens about 45 minutes later? It just falls out and you need more. Glucose levels fall because there's all that insulin around. And you're like, I need some sugar. And so you order dessert, you order more cocktails. Um, There's a reason they give you that free food. Like they don't understand why, but it's been shown in multiple studies that you end up Hmm. eating more if you eat those chips or that bread in the beginning. So I try not to. It's not easy. Those chips are damn good sometimes. And so is that bread at Lestrade. Yeah. I try to just not even just put on that end of the table. Um, When we do bariatric surgery, we have people eat protein first. So eat protein first. I always sometimes think that, you know, if we just followed that diet, you know, uh, we wouldn't need bariatric surgery. You know, protein and fat first before you eat your carbohydrates. I want to, we'll do this again. I want to, we didn't touch much on fat consumption and the different kinds of fats. You did touch on a little bit of saturated and the red meat. Let's end it by going back to red meat. And I know that portion control was just mentioned. If you have a 12 ounce healthy fed beef, you know the story of the beef, you know how it was raised. You know, a lot of these- It was a happy cow. Yeah, this steak that I'm going to give you tonight was happy cows. Wagyu, it will blow your mind. Can you eat a steak at night with a salad, cut out all the starch and be okay with red meat consumption every night? I think so. I'd love to know so. I'd love for us to have good studies, but yeah, I think so. I do think so. Okay, good. Because that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do too. I told you. Yeah. Meat and vegetables. And I'm not real big. I don't eat a lot of pork. I don't eat a lot of chicken, but I love red meat and I love fish. I could eat fish all the time. Clean fish. Walleye fillets cooked in a tiny bit of butter for the fat, but I just, and I don't need to bread any of it. I don't need a a beer battered, you know, fish fry. Even though I was just in Wisconsin, we signed a deal with Travel Wisconsin. So I went up there and, and they are known for two of the unhealthiest foods in the world. You know, cheese curds, cheese with breading on them fried yeah. in grease and then fish fries right because of the catholicism up there and the church yeah. and the and lent and all that um every friday night's a fish fry and god they're good so i partaked because i work so hard in the off season i want to enjoy some of that when i get to go experience that because girl i never knew i was going to get to go to wisconsin and be invited into this you know these people rolling out the red carpet and saying here's your fish fry here's your cheese curds here's this you know like it's cool. I want to partake. I want experience. I want to do it in, you know, good portions. I want to, you know, make sure that I maintain my discipline by not overindulging in it. And I think that it is possible to be too critical of ourselves. I'm very critical of myself to the point my girlfriend's like, are you serious? Like, do you not see yourself? You're fine. Just relax. She's always saying, just relax. You're going to die of stressors more so than carb, you know, eating too many carbohydrates or gaining a couple pounds because you're always worried about gaining a couple pounds. Stop worrying. You know what I mean? So it's like, there's a lot of discussions around heart disease, how it can happen. And we didn't even get into stress, which is a silent killer. It's probably the most deadly silent killer, right? Stress. And I don't want to stress over it, but I want to be disciplined to where, yeah, I do work hard. But then as soon as I go there, Dr. Block, and I eat that cheese curd, I'm thinking like, man, I shouldn't be doing this. But I automatically forget about the five or six months I just put in of nonstop work in the gym that's allowed me or afforded me that opportunity to not go overindulge, but just go experience it and enjoy it and not feel guilty about it. 
I think you nailed it. I think that's right. You know, I'm not talking about joining a, a, a convent and eating only rice and vegetables every day. You know, yeah, though, no, this is you got to live life. You got to enjoy. You got to make mostly healthy choices. Um, and that, yeah, that allows you the freedom to at times be able to indulge some of your other tastes um, every now and again. 100%. 100%. That's Dr. Michael Block. When are you going to write a book? You got a book coming out? Are you going to write a book someday or what? Uh, it's you a good question. A I, I think about it a little bit. There's a lot of. A lot of time and effort. I'm not so disciplined like you are. Yeah, it is a lot of time. <laughs> Just a cookbook took me forever. Yeah. Thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. Always Thank you for you. getting my numbers back to me. Let's just go out on this note. I did find them. And here were the numbers to remind you, Dr. Block, to where where I sit right now. Okay. In, 2000, or in April of 2021, my cholesterol total was 318. Today, it's 137. My triglycerides on that same date in 2021 were 168. Today, they're 90. My HDLs on that date in 2021 were 33, which is my good cholesterol. Today, they're 43, up 10. And my LDLs on that date were 90, or no, there wasn't a reading on that date. Oh, 252. That's not good. Today, they're 76. All I'll say is you must have a good doctor. (laughs) It's pretty good numbers. Great. Pretty good numbers. Great. What else would you tell me? Do any of those need to come down anymore? Do my my LDLs need to be lower than 76? I don't think so. Like if... In somebody who has established heart disease, right, has already had a heart attack or stroke, sometimes we'll, we'll drop it down lower than that. Um, but in general, I think those numbers are perfect. The other numbers that are important that, you know, just for listeners, right, that you want to know is you want to know what your sugar is. You know, that's your sugars was have been a little high in the past. You've gotten those down to the normal level. And then there's that molecule I mentioned earlier, which is lipoprotein A. Um, yours has been a little bit elevated and probably still is. But uh, those are the those are the important numbers to keep track of. And then the blood pressure course. All right, everybody out there. Thank you, doctor. My pleasure. Facts don't lie. About 695,000 people die of heart disease in the U.S. every year. That's probably an underestimation, but yeah, it's a shocking number. The provider, American Almond Beef and Gator Coolers, encourages you to get serious about your health and to actively take care of your body because it's the most priceless possession you have. Chad Belding and Dr. Michael Block will return to wrap the show right after these words from our partners. Let's hit the water cooler. Vision. I just had a lens retraction surgery last year it's pretty much like cataracts that you're going to get in your 60s 70s everybody's going to get it once you get it your vision is there it's never changing artificial lenses i had it at 40s and i'm telling you with what i do with duck hunting and scouting and watching my daughter grow up i'm just so thankful that i'm back to 2015 in my right eye and 2020 in my left eye thanks to dr matt mills who you've all heard on our podcast but i want to protect my eyes and that's exactly where one of our badass partners comes in Oakley, Oakley eyewear, the Oakley culture, the Oakley lifestyle. Protect your vision when you're shooting, when you're fishing. Nothing worse than getting a hook in the eye with somebody casting on the same boat. You just can't take it for granted. The damage the sun can cause, the rays, the UV, just keeping the dust and the dirt out of your eyes. Just everything during a hunt, pit blind, boat blind. It doesn't matter, sun up. They make different lenses for different skies. They're sold all over the world and they support the military and the blue line. 
and conservation and hunting and fishing in the outdoors and living off the land. And we never hunt without our Oakleys. Everybody's like, why you always got your sunglasses on? Shouldn't be wearing sunglasses. You probably shouldn't in turkey hunting. I don't wear them in turkey hunting because of the vision of a turkey and the reflection. But when I'm shooting trap range or the sporting clays or the skeet or the five stand, or I'm in a duck hunt or a goose hunt, I have my Oakleys with me at all time. I put them in my banded backpack. I have them in an Oakley hard case. I keep them protected. The prism, lenses, everything that goes in to the technology behind the Oakley brand and the frames, the function of them, all of the different lenses that you can get, like I mentioned, and the way they protect our eyes. The prism lens technology is second to none. You got to get a pair of Oakleys. I know there's a lot of choices out there when you want to protect your eyes, but remember, please support the brands that support this lifestyle. Oakley, the official eyewear of the Foul Life TV, the Foul Life podcast, and everything we do here at the provider and where the pavement ends. Thank you so much for supporting Oakley. Being in the backyard at camp, being with friends and family, one thing that the pandemic did is it got us back in our backyards. It got us staying home more. And man, we just started doing so many cookouts, so much grilling. And we've been partnered with Traeger Grills for the last decade. And I don't know if you can be more innovative than what this brand has done from the new Timberline XL and the new Flat Rock, the Ironwood 885, all of their pellets, their rubs, their sauces, their glazes, their smash burger kit, you name it. Traeger Grills is awesome. And we use them a ton. I'm sure you've seen it on the Foul Life. You've seen it in our social media. Get creative. Be innovative. Think outside of the box. Wild game, domestic, vegetables, desserts, pizzas. You can do it all on a Traeger grill. And like I mentioned, that Timberline XL with that conduction plate. I'm talking high heat, reverse sear steaks. Anything you want to put on there gets it done in a hurry after you put a little smoke on them on the grill. Transfers right over. So easy. Everything is simplified. You can download the Traeger Grills app. You can find recipes. You can work with pros like Matt Pittman at Meat Church and Chad Ward at Whiskey Bent Barbecue and so many others from across the country to master these recipes. It's simple and that's what Traeger is all about. They did not want your backyard experience to be complex. So when you're thinking of fun and good food and flavor recipes, thinking outside the box, think no further than Traeger Grills. I can't wait to get back in my Traeger Grill. Just cook up something delicious. Thank you all very much. We've had the provider mentality for a long time. Growing up and watching dad and mom cook wild game, whether it was an Italian lasagna or a spaghetti, I watched in awe and I couldn't wait to be old enough to do it. Then we got to travel and meet all of these different chefs at all these different lodges in Argentina and Uruguay or Paraguay or Arkansas or Missouri or Chef Mark Lindsay who you hear on the podcast, This Life Ain't For Everybody, a lot up in Minnesota at Trapper's Landing, part of the Reed's family of brands. And I started to learn so many different unorthodox, out-of-the-box ways of preparing Mr. Billy Bogey's smothered deer steak at Prairie Wings Duck Club in Arkansas or the duck empanadas at Duck Guides of Argentina. And they all became part of the Provider Cookbook, the Provider Mentality at theproviderlife.com, our rubs, our original 10 in the Ultimate Pack, including the swine and the flaky, the spawn, the drop tine, the fowl, the crosshairs, the brit, the dragon, the sonora. Then we introduced the brand beef rub and the mother cluck and chicken rub. And you can find recipes at theproviderlife.com. Check out the Provider TV on the My Outdoor TV app, Mo TV, part of the Outdoor Sportsman's Group and the Outdoor Channel family of brands. We got more coming. We got so much more coming. Good luck out in the field. Good luck out on the rivers. I hope you get those wild turkey nuggets and that pickle juice right away and get ready to throw down with some different rubs on them. The provider lifestyle. We're so honored to live it. Thank you, Lord, for letting us be outdoorsmen, hunter, gatherers, conservationists, and providers. Again, theproviderlife.com. Thank you for visiting. 
Today's Dr. Michael Block broadcast appointment is over. 2024, let's make it our healthiest, best year yet. Chad Belling, Dr. Michael Block, thank you for listening. Let's kick the sh** out of 2024 and reach the pinnacle of health by listening to Jack Daniels Presents This Life Ain't For Everybody with Chad Belding on SoundCloud, iHeart, Spotify, and thislifeaintforeverybody.com. Stay fit and thanks for listening.